You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Um, I can't believe it, but it's, as we've been saying, the last Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas, and yet here we are refusing to do a Christmas sermon and just sticking with Exiles, the book of Daniel, um, the, the series that we've been going through for a couple of months now. We're going to be uh, continuing in that sermon series, but never fear, I'm not short on cheer. I will you know, tie in Christmas a little bit as we go through, and it'll be really good. But uh, no, I'm, I love the momentum that God has uh, in this church as we have been studying the book of Daniel and what uh, has been coming out week after week. Uh, and speaking of that, I want to remind us of last week a little bit before starting uh, my message this week, because we're going into chapter 3, but without remembering chapter 2 in Daniel, we're going to perhaps miss a lot of what's happening at the start of chapter 3. So uh, last Sunday, Pastor Greg was teaching us about the hope that we have as exiles, the hope that Daniel had as exiles, and what that can look like as we live in our particular setting uh, we read the second half of chapter 2, which is where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's disturbing to him. So he calls upon his wise men to, t- first of all, tell him what the dream is, and then interpret the dream for him. So an impossible task. No one can do it. So he says, well, I'm going to kill you all. Um, <laughs> and Daniel catches wind of this. And and uh, by God's grace, he he has insight into the situation and he says, well, wait a minute, I think I can pray and help the king with his dream and the interpretation of it. And so, uh, supernaturally, God provides him with that wisdom to not only know the dream, but also tell the king what it was. And so, the king's dream was about a statue and it was stratified, so the top was made of gold and then there was different parts of the body made of different materials as it went down. And then, uh, so he saw the statue in his dream. Also, what he saw in his dream was a stone that came out of nowhere. It rose up and it crushed the statue. The statue fell. It became like nothing. Meanwhile, the stone had turned into a, a mountain that took over the earth. And so this is what the king needed, interpreted what he was concerned about. And like I said, Daniel interpreted it for him. And the interpretation of the dream was as in summary, that uh, each of those layers of the statue represents a kingdom. The gold layer at the top, the head of the statue, uh, indicated Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had the dream, and then the ones that followed would be kingdoms that followed. Um, But what was, uh, I think, very interesting, especially in the way that uh, Greg presented it for us, was the stone that rose up and crushed the statue represented God's kingdom. Right? It represents God's reign, uh, the eternity or the eternal way that God reigns and how in the end the kingdoms of man will fall and God will reign forever in his way. So this is what has been happening, what happened last week, sort of to summarize what was going on. And I want this um, in our minds as we read chapter 3 because it makes King Nebuchadnezzar's behavior very interesting, to say the least. So if you have a Bible, um, I invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 3. Or if you have eyes, you can look at the screen because it will be up there too. (laughs) Um, 
Daniel 3, and I'm just reading 1 to 7 this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music. You are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and they worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the word of the Lord. So it would seem that in spite of Daniel's clear interpretation of the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar was only partly listening. He was definitely most interested in the first part of the dream, where Daniel explained that the head of gold on the statue represents Nebuchadnezzar. This idea was obviously a big hit with the king, because apparently right after hearing this, Hearing the truth of what God spoke to him through Daniel, the king sets to building a statue, except this one is made completely of, you guessed it, gold. The whole thing is going to be gold. So I don't want the silliness or irony of this to be lost on us. Just a few verses before, Daniel essentially explains to Nebuchadnezzar the overall smallness of his kingdom in the eternal realm. Right? The insignificance of the power that God has given him in the grand scheme of things. And not only his, but all other worldly empires. God will destroy them. And yet somehow all that Nebuchadnezzar gets out of this conversation is the inspiration to create national idol which be on display for his own greatness and his own empire. This reminded me of um, perhaps an employee who has a review with their boss and um, like a performance review or whatever. So the employee sits down with the boss and the boss um, pays a small compliment like, oh, nice glasses. Thank you very much. And then the, they proceed with the performance review in which... Uh, the boss, you know, explains to the employee all of their shortcomings, um, the reality of the, the way that they're working, which is not quite where it should be, the things that they need to work on, you know, criticisms and things like that. The meeting finishes, the employee stands up to leave, and they say to themselves, hmm, that went pretty well. Because all they remember is the start where the boss said, I like your glasses, and then the rest didn't seem to get through to them. I don't know if this has ever happened to you in a conversation with someone or maybe something completely different, but yeah, it's similar. This is kind of what it seems to have happened with Daniel's 
uh, explanation of the dream to the king. I mean, surely the king heard what he said, but perhaps he didn't like it, right? King Nebuchadnezzar takes the tiny recognition that Daniel affords him, and he appears to miss out on the bigger picture that Babylon, as I said, along with all other kingdoms, are, first of all, put in place by as well, they will be taken down by God in due time. Politicians are not as powerful as they appear to be to themselves or to us, but rather there is a sovereign God who is all-powerful over these kinds of things. And yet again, King Nebuchadnezzar's ego is too big, it's too much in the way for him to hear and understand the truth of the matter and perceive it humbly. So he makes a humongous statue. Um, I want to talk for a minute about the way that chapter 3 is written and some of the features that we find there. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but there's a lot of repetition in Daniel chapter 3. There's a lot of repetition, um, a lot of words, and then they're said again over and over in a couple of different places as well as later in the part that we didn't read yet. So any time that there's repetition in Scripture... I think if we're not paying attention, we maybe think that it's just poorly written, (laughs) that the people forgot what they were saying, so they said it again. That's not how it works. Um, In fact, there's repetition because it was well written, and we are supposed to, you know, pick up on the fact that things are being repeated and pay closer attention to what's being said. So, for example, as we heard in uh, two verses three, or sorry, three verses two and three. There's those long lists of all the government employees that the king calls to this uh, ceremony, the satraps and the prefects and all things like that. Those are people who work for the king or are employed in other kingdoms and, and, and report to him or something, you know, different positions like that. So the author lists them, long list, and then repeats these titles. The reason they do this is so that we get the sense that this ceremony was intended to be of incredible international significance. Anybody who was anybody was called upon to be there and not just to see the idol, but to worship it, to bow before it. And there's a similar kind of repetition with the musical instruments, right? The harp and the lyre and the zither, and it's all listed. It says all kinds of music, and then shortly after, repeated again. The point is the same. The worship for this idol was supposed to be all-encompassing. Everything you could imagine, the biggest show on earth, was to be performed for the king and for his idol that he built. And so for us, God's people, as we read this text, we're supposed to see how overindulgent Nebuchadnezzar's sense of self was. The self-importance that he had was insane. The way that he viewed his empire was all-encompassing. It was full of pride. So the ceremony that comes through is ridiculous, especially given the context of the dream and then the idol. And yet, this is the length to which Nebuchadnezzar, and I would argue any person, will go to exalt themselves. One more thing to note, and then we'll move on. Um, we probably missed it because it doesn't sound very important, or it's hard to notice, but the author repeats the the phrase set up, or set up. In all of three, he does this nine times, 
And this is important because if we recall for just a second back to chapter 2 again, chapter 244 in Daniel's interpretation to the king, he says this, In those days, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms, and it will bring them to an end, and but will itself endure forever. So who is it that sets up kingdoms? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. That's for sure. It's God. It's God who sets up kings and kingdoms. There is no self-made man in God's kingdom. And so again, as we read chapter 3, the author repeats nine times the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar is setting up this statue. He sets up the golden statue. And this is to contrast the truth about what Daniel said to him versus the king's stubborn insistence on the greatness that he wants to set up for himself instead. He insists upon it. Well, God has set up a true plan for creation that is eternal. Nebuchadnezzar defiantly declares that he's the one who sets up gods for people to bow down to. This is incredibly prideful, and it's indicative of all that not just the king represents, but Babylon as a theme is all about. So it's good for us to pick up on this. To say that Nebuchadnezzar is prideful is an understatement. I was trying to, it says that the statue is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, which is actually not very wide at all. It would have been thin and tall. Um, but the, the clock tower over there on the post office is less than 90 feet, but not too much. So if you picture about that height, this is uh, the magnitude of what we're talking here. Since we're talking about prideful kings, and it is Christmas season, and I promise not to, uh, you know, completely ignore that fact, another person comes to mind for me that I've been, you know, thinking about as I've gone through this uh, passage. Uh, It's King Herod. King Herod. Herod the Great, as he is called. He was the ruler at the time of Jesus' birth, which you can read about in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 2. Um, he gets news of the birth of Jesus, and this causes King Herod to freak out, which he does a lot. Um, One of the many things that causes Herod to freak out, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. So Herod gets the news that a baby boy was supposed to be born king of the Jews. And Herod's response, also similar to Nebuchadnezzar, is kill them all. All the boys, we're going to kill them. Wipe them out so that this so-called king won't, you know, usurp my throne, which is crazy. So Mary and Joseph, uh, they go into exile for a time with their baby, with baby Jesus, to protect him while Herod goes on this rampage. Of all the things I could talk about right before Christmas, why Herod? Why do you got to bring him up instead of the other stuff in the Christmas story? And I, I, I think I've talked about Herod before in the Christmas season, but I believe that it's good for us to think about him, you know, and, and we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar as well, because we are not to dismiss these guys. Don't dismiss Herod and Nebuchadnezzar and other villains like them in the scriptures or in our world. 
yes, it's hard for us to identify, hopefully, with their brutality, their violence, and the power that they have and things like this. But there is a part of each of us that, like them, must feel confronted by the announcement and the presence of a new king in our lives. A new king and a new kingdom, one that calls for not pride, uh, but for repentance and humility. Not violence, but for the love and prayer for enemies. Not killing, but sacrifice and selflessness. And the fact is that we are all confronted with the reality of this new king instead of the empires which we would strive to build on our own, apart from God. Uh, Pastor Greg sent me a screenshot of this quote from Paul David Tripp, and I loved it, so I want to share it with you this morning. Paul David Tripp, a pastor, says, The the coming of the infant king means the gracious destruction of the kingdom of self and a loving welcome to the kingdom of God. The gracious destruction of the kingdom of self and a loving welcome to the kingdom of God. I love that. So as we hear of the news of King Jesus, uh, once again, especially in this season, let each of us be reminded of the full gospel message and the truth of what's actually happening in the story. Let us check our hearts for barriers, whether they're big or small, that our pride would set up to oppose the presence of King Jesus and his rule in our lives. The Gospel of Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, which we've been reading in Advent, Matthew 4. Uh, The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So as wonderful as the Christmas story is, and I love to read and reread and meditate and talk and pray about it every Christmas, it's, it's the best. But there's an element to it that we must allow ourselves to be challenged by, which we read clearly in verse 17, right after uh, the, the prophet is quoted about, you know, being brought from darkness into light and how wonderful that is. We get that. But in verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So to me, this means that those of us who desire to participate in God's kingdom accordingly instead of the kingdoms of our culture and world, we must repent. We must repent. In order to repent, we will leave perhaps the familiarity of the darkness that God has called us out of and become accustomed to and start to recognize that there is a new king. There is a new king, and his name is Jesus. So returning to Daniel, what we have read and will continue to read in Daniel and what you can read about throughout all of the scriptures is this idea of the supremacy of Christ. 
He's not just a man who was born in a manger in a, you know, interesting way and, and did some important things and, and so on and died and, you know, who cares? No. Jesus is supreme. As we read about last week, Jesus is represented in that stone in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream that rises up and has come to crush the evil kingdoms of the world and replace them and, and take over to reign in truth and justice and perfect love eternally in their place. There are a lot of uh, scripture references which describe and explain for us the supremacy of Christ and what this looks like. I wanted to just read two. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, in his sermon, says, Jesus is the stone that, uh, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under which heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Then Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 1. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things are being held together. He is also the head. Whoa. Of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So while we think about what Christmas means, while we think about what his kingdom coming means, and we sing about preparing him room in our lives, remember that Jesus might take up more room than we've prepared for him. Jesus is not just the baby born in the manger on that lonely night in Bethlehem. Jesus is the resurrected king Above all others, the only one who can save humanity. Jesus is the embodiment of God, given to us by God's grace, so that we can be reconciled to him. This is all in and through the person of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Going back to the theme of exile and and following God faithfully in our present setting, what does this look like? Well, I believe there's uh, two temptations that are kind of one and the same, but it's twofold. Um, The first one is like King Nebuchadnezzar or King Herod or anyone else in uh, 
that type of um, response to Jesus. The temptation is to overall resist the lordship, resist the lordship of Christ, and to continue uh, building our empires and, and setting up our own idols as we live. Can we continue to surrender our pride and our disordered desires back to Jesus? Or will we instead be stubborn and insist on ruling our own empires while we can? And and this is not uh, just a, a once and done question that we ask ourselves. I believe it's a continual renovation of the heart, right? It's a because there's there's so many ways, and big or small, like I said, that we may not even be aware of. And the Holy Spirit, we need to let Him speak to us and and show us what these are. So we'll be tempted to resist the lordship of Christ and and uh, be our own king, so to speak. Secondly, on top of this, we're going to be faced with the pressure to give in to the demands of the rulers who tell us to worship idols instead, won't we? In this case, do we give in? Do we allow ourselves to be uh, more responsive to and more formed by the culture in which we live than the truth that we have been given? And this, again, is an ongoing discussion for us with God to wrestle with and continue to submit to. I said that uh, we are going to be pressured to bow down to the idols that are set up for us instead of to Jesus. And so as we live faithfully, we have to continue to not give in to this temptation. And we're going to... Uh, you may be sad that I stopped where I did. Originally, in chapter 3, I was planning on uh, teaching on all of it. But I wanted to stop where I did and return to chapter 3 to talk about uh, the fiery furnace in January so that we could pay closer attention to that. That's where we're going to see the resistance of Daniel and his friends to this demand of the king to bow down. So never fear, we will... Uh, come back to that as well, and it's going to be awesome. But in any case, I want us to be reminded today and think carefully of the truth of the kingdom of heaven come to us when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and fulfilled in his resurrection, after which all powers of death were beaten by the power of God alone, the stone that crushes all kingdoms of earth and reign supreme. You may struggle with the temptation to be prideful and want to control and rule. Uh, You may struggle with the temptation to give in to the forces that are imposed on us in this setting. Um, I struggle with both, and I suppose that all of us probably do in different ways. But my encouragement for us today is to see the nearness of God come to us in Christ and the call for us to repent, again come through Christ, to repent from our own idols and sin and to walk in a different kingdom than the temporary ones in which we live. 
We can be like Daniel and his friends living in Babylon to, to be empowered, not by might or our own strength, but simply by choosing to place our faith in the reality of the one true God who lives and saves us. By doing so, I believe we'll be empowered to resist the temptation, like I said, not in our own might, but actually in our humility and our submission to the one who made all things and who ruled yesterday, rules today, and will rule forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you today for meeting us in the form which you did at Christmas time. Thank you for stepping into creation in order to show us the way that you want us to live and to make it possible for us to be alive in you. And today I pray that each of us, in our own way, can behold the wonder of this fact and receive you in our hearts and minds in a deeper, truer sense, God. I ask that our pride and selfishness, which we are all prone to, would continue to decrease as we step into the light of Christ. Lord, forgive us for our efforts to build empires and idols instead of surrender completely to you. And Holy Spirit, would you come remind us of the life that we've been called and empowered to in your presence. God, make us a people set apart and glorious so that all who know us will know the name of Jesus truly. Amen.